From a wide range of embroidery classes to talks and special events, Royal School of Needlework's International Summer School offers so much. Immerse yourself in the world of the RSN with its world-renowned tuition and treat yourself to this Festival of Stitch in July and August 2024. The Royal School of Needlework is offering four ways to get involved this year. You can join the International Summer School on-site at Hampton Court Palace and at the Royal School of Needlework Durham in the UK, as well as Lexington, Kentucky in the United States of America. There are also online classes available live so students can join in anywhere from around the world. There's a wonderful variety of techniques to explore for those who are starting out on their hand embroidery journey all the way through to advanced stitches. So whether you want to follow a kit-based design, explore your own creativity using your own materials in a more contemporary way, or focus on developing your personal design skills, there will be a class that appeals to you. The Royal School of Needlework International Summer School classes will provide experienced stitchers with an opportunity to engage in a longer or more advanced project while allowing those newer to the world of hand embroidery to try a shorter course to build and develop their skills. The full list of classes and more information about the Royal School of Needlework International Summer School is available at royal-needlework.org.uk with special offers for booking multiple classes and an early bird booking price available until the 29th of February 2024. Whether you're planning on attending in person, online, or a combination of the two, this is a fantastic opportunity to improve your stitching skills from one of the best schools in the world. Julie Heaton is a UK-based free machine embroidery artist. Julie's embroidered artwork has been an exploration of her path to recovery following her husband's suicide in 2009. Recovery isn't the right word, um, but Julie recognises that she's found a point of stability following something that was an earth-shattering event for her. Her machine-embroidered pieces have depth and quality and feeling and emotion, and she recognises that the events that took place have brought her to this position of artistic expression right now. This is the first part of our conversation, and I'm sorry that I'm not being very eloquent here, but it's quite hard to talk about this stuff easily. In this episode, full warning, we talk at some length about the effect that her husband's suicide had on her family. But throughout all of this, there's a sense that she wouldn't be here now making the work that she's making had that not happened. And while nobody ever wishes suicide to be a thing, it's not that there's good that's come from it, but I think Judy recognises that she's been on a journey and she's still on that journey. And the place that she's in now is about as good a place as you could hope to be. It's a fascinating conversation. I really love talking with Julie. It was really deep and meaningful. And I think she's got a lot to say on the subject. Um, if you know anybody who's been affected by this sort of thing, there are mental health charities and lots of online help available and support. And I think that's something that we touch on as well. So this episode is a bit heavy. Um, it ends nicely. And obviously we'll be back next week with the second half of the conversation. So 
do visit Julie's work at julieheaton.com or find Julie Heaton Artist on Instagram and you'll see why her work's amazing and why it was really good to talk to her. So I hope you enjoy the show. I apologise that I've not been able to speak very easily about it, but, you know, it's quite it's quite a topic. So um, thanks for being there. I'll see you next week. Take care. Uh, there's something about... I don't know whether it's me or something, but I love normal things being immortalized. So with that said, why don't you tell us all about the people on the tube and how it happened? Because I, w- I want to know all about that one as well, because technically that was quite challenging for you. And I think that's a great place to start. Okay, well, that's, um, <clears throat> that's a really good story behind that one. So um, when I was on my BA um, in, in Bath, I was making some work that were drawings of things that were in my husband's drawer at work. Um, after he died, they had to clear the drawer out. And I was given this box of um, items. And so I thought I'd make some drawings of them, pencil and paper. I didn't know what else to do. I was quite a busy summer, quite distracted, had to get back to uni, had to fulfil the brief. And when my tutors looked at it, they said, hmm, you know, I don't think, you know, maybe maybe you need to find a different way to work. You know, the drawings haven't really quite worked. Some are okay. And then one of my tutors said to me, yeah, so just don't draw, Julie. Find another way to work. And please, whatever you do, promise me, you won't draw people again. (laughs) (laughs) I'd had some drawings of people as well that I'd been, you know, sort of looking at to do with my family and my late husband. Um, And so I was at first a bit distraught. Um, because I did, I really like drawing, but it's always, and I was really good at drawing as a child and I didn't understand what had happened from being a child. But of course, if you don't keep practicing something, you lose it. Mm. And um, so I went away and I started drawing, um, like you do, with your eyes closed or with a stick, um, a pencil and a long stick, or, um, and then I started drawing with my sewing machine. And I thought, I know what I'll do. Uh, I won't, I won't get, I won't worry about what's gone wrong. I'll let all the bits that go wrong become part of the work because then I mm. just can free myself up and I'm not worried about how somebody judges it because I've left the mistakes in it. And so that's just freed up this, you know, the um, my drawing. And so then I um, I drew a picture of um, a camera. Um, mm. That was the first thing I did. Didn't particularly enjoy the free machine embroidery. I found it quite laborious. But anyway, I completed the piece of work. And that was my uh, first attempt at drawing with my sewing machine. And that won a prize at the Royal West of England Academy um, for students. <laughs> so this teacher who told me, I mean, I have to say, she was right about the drawings that I'd made. But I guess it was it was a bit more difficult to say, actually, don't draw. Because how many of us get told not to draw? And then it just puts us off completely. Mm. Um, so anyway, as you know, then from the camera, I then made, there was the Bristol two litre engine. And then I sort of moved through challenging myself with the drawing process. And then I remembered the, and don't draw people. <laughs> so in 2012 on my BA, I'd taken a photograph of this couple on the tube. I'd seen them sitting there. And I guess I'm quite fascinated by people. I mean, I've worked for the NHS for a long time and I've retired, finished that now. And, and obviously being in a relationship where your husband sort of, dies and it takes his own life and so I guess there's this fascination between interaction between people and what is actually going on when I was a midwife you you saw some of the things that were going going on behind so anyway I got my sister to sit and this couple were on the tube and they didn't they didn't move they didn't say a word they didn't speak to each other they were just motionless and they just had their the view and their view was fixed I said to my sister go and sit by the side of them and I'm going to pretend that I'm taking a photograph <laughs> of you that 
picture of the couple on the tube. But anyway, that was in 2012. And it probably wasn't until 2016 um, that I I just kept thinking about this picture. Mm. I thought, I'm going to try and draw that. I'm going to challenge myself to drawing people. I know I can draw a car engine. I know I can draw some inanimate objects. But can I do people? And um, and then I just started with the eyes and they didn't work. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe, maybe that's right. And then I restarted again. And, um, and, and I got the eyes right. And then I moved on to the next part. And I would just start in one part and I kept moving on to the next bit. And every part was a challenge. You know, I did the eyes and I had to get the lips right. And then I had to get the skin right. And then I had to do a hair. And everything I moved through became a, um, another challenge. And there were times that I'd been working on the drawing for about, you know, maybe six or nine months. And then I would get to the carrier bag. And then I'd think, oh my gosh, I, this drawing's not going to work. I spent all that time. How do I get the carrier bag to be translucent? How do I get... And, and I just kept moving through the picture like that. And I and I got to the hands. And that took me about two weeks to try and draw the hands. And that was how I just moved through the picture. So I spent about two years making it because I had to keep going mm. back to it and add other things happening at the same time. And um, and to be working on something where you've got a year and a half's work and then you've got to another problem on the drawing and you're trying to resolve it. And if you don't resolve it, the rest of the work is, um, you know, it's, it's not going to be... Um, mm. used and, and I just kept working for it like that and then at the end I had to do my usual thing I had to um, pin it onto some foam loft boards and take it outside mm. and hose it down so two years of work <laughs> because it's all made on dissolved fabric and it gets hosed down in the garden <laughs> and it's quite spectacular um, and then you just have to leave it to dry and you have to wait and see what's happened. Yeah. So this idea that you can obsessively control over the, sti the stitch and then you don't know at the end, you just throw all that away. Um, and that was, so it was just, so I made it because it, I was challenging myself. I, I never believe in my, I find it really difficult to believe in myself. So I'll make things that are just challenging and trying to prove that, you know, there is a, there is a work to my work and that I can create, but I, so, <laughs> yeah, and a piece of work is still behind me. Can I ask a dumb question? When, when you do, say, for instance, when you're doing the bag, when you're trying to do the tri translucence, do you do that on separate things? Do you, do, do you have, like, lots of little test pieces where you feel it out before applying your skill to the total piece? Yeah, I've been asked that so many times, and it's really interesting. I would test out colours. So I'll have um, a piece, um, a small piece of dissolvable fabric about sort of that fits into a 20-centimetre hoop, and I'll work in sort of one centimetre square to test out the colours because each colour up because it's thread you, you I can't blend them like I can blend paints I've, the threads I've got is what I have to work with so I will have different colour thread at the top and a different colour at the, at the bottom and then I will alter the tensions so I do that to try and work out what colours I need to what threads I need to use but when it actually comes to practicing um to try and experiment with the with the plastic bag the carrier bag I have to do it in the main piece of work because if I do it on the on the hoop on my trial piece then by because there's so many layers to whatever step I'm doing unless mm. I keep really careful records I can't remember so I just tend to go launch straight into the piece of work and if it hasn't worked you, you can cut something out right. um, and every now and again I might experiment with some layers of color 
um, if I'm trying to work out how to make it translucent, I might experiment a little bit, but mostly it's in the, it's in the piece of work. Because right. it's the only place where I can really apply myself and really attempt to get it to work because it takes so because it's all it's such a lengthy process. Because it's interesting as well in that there's a sort of engineering element to this, isn't it? As we were saying, like with Meredith mm. Walno, techniques very similar, machine stitching on soluble canvas. And she said, you know, there's you have to build up the stitches to such a point where they've got their own integrity. So that and I think you found mm. this with your camera, didn't you? When you dissolve away the yeah. fabric it kind of melts a little bit on you. It kind of changes and doesn't have the structure that you intended. So I suppose, is that no. is that a process of trial and error? Or with that piece at the end, did you just hose it and be like, dear Lord, please don't let this melt. You know, please let it hold up. <laughs> uh, it's it's a really, it, it's what's really interesting about that is um, when I was widowed through suicide, when really awful life events have happened, you try really hard to control everything in your life because you don't want anything else to go wrong mm. and and first of all you can't really you it's very difficult to use the word suicide and to talk about what's happened especially um well it's just really difficult because of the history of the word suicide and the difficulties mm. I have been around talking about it so this would play out in my work so I would you know internalize this and I would be trying and I'd be making work and obsessing over it but then there was this idea that at the end of the making I then by pinning it onto these boards and washing it, I'm just throwing all that control. So what happens? What do I, how do I feel when something I've been working on or something in my life I've been trying to control doesn't go the way I want it to, or it falls apart or it moves. So that's what was really interesting. So every time I make a piece of work um, and when I dissolve the backing, I do look at it and think, oh, oh, I'm really disappointed. That's not quite what I wanted. Something's moved or there's a hole mm. or, there's a you know and sometimes it can take me a few days before I can fall back in love with the piece of work I've had to come to terms with what's happened in this in this stage of the making it sounds analogous to parenthood yeah exactly and and parenting when you're all trying you're all grieving and you're all so confused so the work was really good because that's and my boys loved the work as well they were Mm. really supportive so it was good for all of us. They mm. could see me making something. There would be lots of discussions amongst us. Well, what did he think of the end of the piece afterwards and what had gone wrong? And and it was really interesting with the camera. There was um because that was the first piece. Spent a little bit of time trying to decide if I should repair it, mm. if I should fix the part where it had fallen, where it had moved. Should I fix them? And then I just re- you know then I became then I sort of appreciated the beauty yeah. in those flaws. I just thought they were more significant maybe than the piece of work even. So as I got better at the process, there is slightly less, slightly less flaws. <laughs> That's what I was thinking in terms of like the parenthood thing, you know, you try and bring children up and you try and control the way that they grow and evolve. But at a certain point, you have to let them go. And I'm not necessarily thinking of disappointment, but there's that I've made this thing and now the world gets to adapt to it or something. And so it's that, it's that similar process. Yeah. I was also then thinking about um, mm. when I interviewed Kaz Holmes, she talked, you know, she uses found objects and she doesn't really start a piece of work with an agenda. So there's a kind of thrill in the unknown, the sort of alchemy. And I suppose there's an element of that, as you say, do you try and hold on to the original vision or do you go actually this is some kind of partnership there's a partnership where I'm creating and the fabric is creating 
and then you're working together as best you can. And I think it's really interesting, but and it's not sometimes necessarily to, to necessarily to do with the outcome. It's, it, for me, it's more about how did I feel about it? How did I process it? What did I learn from that? Uh, as well as the fact that I've got a piece of a piece of work that I can show to people and have a conversation about. But the interesting thing is, if you wanted total control, then you could just stitch it on a fabric that wasn't dissolvable, mm. couldn't you? So you're always giving yourself that jeopardy. And I need to have, give myself that jeopardy to give myself some freedom, because once I'm on fabric and it doesn't move, then I have these preconceived ideas. There's a camera. That's what the camera should look like. But by um, having this element of, you know, being on dissolvable fabric, I think maybe the jeopardy is a bit that I like and I like seeing how far I can push that. So that's where I now it's got to a point. Well, the jeopardy is not quite this, the jeopardy is. It's less. It's lessened off now because now mm. I've got better at the process. So that's a really interesting. And then you think, well, what can I? But of course, when I got to start on my my MA at the Royal College of Art, um, I guess there <laughs> I was opening myself up again to be, you know, to kind of put myself in a very uncomfortable position because I was going, I was going there with an established practice. But um, and by then it was becoming successful. But then I was going to be challenged again. My making was going to be completely challenged. And that's exactly what they did. And I got there and they said, why do you only draw with a sewing machine? Mm. Mm. <laughs> and you went, I need to talk, tell you about this person who said I shouldn't draw at all. Just before we go on to the MA, because I do want to talk about that, because that's interesting. One of the things I find interesting if you do free machine embroidery is like when you draw with a pen, you control the pen and when you paint with a brush you control the brush but when you do free machining really you control the surface so it's almost mm. like it's like un undrawing or something you know i think it's interesting it's almost oh. like you're doing the opposite thing aren't you because people don't write that way i don't know obviously it's something yeah, that resonated right. with you i just wonder what you think about that yeah that's really interesting i hadn't really thought about that because i always say to people well i use my same machine as a as a way to draw but of course it is completely different. I am moving the fabric around. And I am a little bit um, at the whim of the sewing machine as well. Because sometimes, you know, it might catch or it might, or the threads might break. And then you have to start again. Whereas normally when you're just drawing a line, you can just keep continuing that line. Mm. But you get interrupted lots of ways with the sewing machine. And also with the same. So, but, um, and of course, when you are moving that, that piece of material around underneath as well that is stretching and moving and holes are turning up in it so the whole process is um is one that is just <laughs> open to to things going to things going wrong and um so when you get it right it's but also because yeah I guess still like I say it's still that idea of jeopardy and maybe that's because I'm not very confident and I need I need to find a way to throw off my inhibitions and I definitely need that element of jeopardy I need the element of things going wrong because then I don't know I really think it gives me a lot more freedom to create the one thing that's fascinating and I don't want this to drift into too much of a therapy session but no intentionally putting jeopardy into work doesn't sound like someone who's not very confident it sounds like someone <laughs> who's like come on I need a bit of a challenge the challenge is always there yeah I do need a bit of a challenge as well. I think that is that it that is right because um it's quite exciting when you have a challenge and then it's disappointing. And then if you can't make something work, 
you can be a bit hard on yourself. Mm. But I, th- I just think unless you have these, take these challenges, unless things go wrong, you're not then going to find the way a way forward. You have to mm. have mistakes. Things have to go wrong in the making. People have to say things that you're not sure about or maybe are a bit uncomfortable because without those, without those happening, the, the next new thing doesn't happen. You know, I think mistakes mm. and are, are absolutely pivotal in my making and, and the comments that I've had from people that have, because we can have these comments and we can just think, oh, that's it, I finished. I just, but if you take some time, people make these comments because normally they're making them because they want to help you or because mm. they've got a valid point. I mean, okay, maybe you might, you can still disagree with a valid point, but uh, I, you know, if that tutor challenged me about my drawing, I wouldn't have started stitching with my sewing machine. If my husband hadn't died, that was, I wouldn't have been making pieces of work like I was his camera and his car engine. I wouldn't have been mm. making them. I wouldn't have been at the summer exhibition. I wouldn't have been showing a piece of work that was all about it. I don't know where my making would have gone if my husband, if the tragedy hadn't happened to our family. Do you think that people, because what you're talking about is resilience, I think. And do you think people Mm. can learn resilience? Like, can you learn resilience from a book? Or do you think the only way you can get resilience is to get beaten up a bit? Oh, I think resilience is so hard. You know, it's affected by so many other things. It's affected by, you know, your health. It's affected by what's happening outside to the weather. It's affected by how your children are doing. You know, so many things. Mm-hmm. I think the thing is to to realise that resilience is a it's a bit of a hard one thing. It, you know, and and you have to realise that you there's sometimes when your resilience is just down, and and you just have to acknowledge that. You just have to think, oh, this is a day where you know this just isn't um this isn't working, and I don't have the motivation or the ability to make it work. But um, but just knowing that that's not going to last because mm. it will come back and then you know and so um and lots of different things in life can affect you know when it comes back and how much you value it so I so I know I know there are times when my resilience is um sort of you know it's it's really minimal and then you have to make some changes and you have to do something about it or you just have to give yourself a bit of time to go for a walk or today's not a day that I'm going to be making but um and then but when you've got that fight and you're really <laughs> and you're really enthusiastic about your, what you're doing, then it's just something that's to be, to be so grateful for. Mm. So I really value, you know, resilience is um, it's a bit of a hard one thing. And there are times when we're better at it and there are times when we're not as good. Um, and I think yeah. that's OK. I sometimes think if you're like in, you know, getting that feedback from your tutor, I don't think you should draw anymore, is pretty brutal. I mean, I'm sure it was couched hopefully more sensitively than that. But that can be hard to take when you're at an age where you're not used to that kind of thing, isn't it? And that's what I think I'm just wondering is, you know, the older you get, the less we care about people's opinions. But also we've had a few bumps and scrapes regardless of our circumstance. Mm -hmm. So you do get a bit tougher. Whereas trying to say to someone who might be like an A-level student going, look, because I always think about the good news sandwich, which is always like, you know, I love your hair. I'm afraid you're fired. I'm going to miss your hair. (laughs) That sort of thing. So they go out on a high note, you know. I think that's something where, but yeah, how you you build that perseverance and that kind of resilience is a whole other matter, really. Yeah, I mean, 
I suppose, I suppose for, for me, what was, um, you know, we'd had something far worse happen. You know, mm. we'd lost, and we'd had this really, really big thing happen. And it's almost, um, some days you can't, but other days you can use that to good. And you can just think, well, I've managed that. Would you would you like to, in the way that's best for you, would you like to tell the tale of what happened with Carl, the way that is best for mm. you? Yes. Well, in... Um, I think before 2009, um, I'd always been a bit of a... It, I, I think I... You know, men are quite often a bit grumpy, aren't they? You know, my dad was a bit grumpy. Uh, yeah. One of my brothers would be a bit grumpy. I'm quite grumpy. You know, 40... You know, children working, it can be a bit grumpy, and and I didn't really know what was going. I didn't because in those days, um, you didn't talk about the word suicide. My mm. son got told off in primary school because we'd used the word at home because it happened in our community, and we'd used the word. And when my son went to school, he got told off, or I got I got asked to come in because he'd used the word suicide, and the teacher thought it was really inappropriate. Mm. And so that's what we were. Uh, and I just remember it was a time when people and there was such a stigma, so nobody talked about mental health. And I and I knew that Carl's mum had already had also taken her own life, but it was never never a conversation that Carl wanted to talk about. Um, it was all kept very very quiet. Um, it wasn't even on his GP record. It was on his GP record that um, she died a different way. So um, and but of course. In when she died in the eighties, that was just the way it was. It was really people people didn't talk about that. So, um, so that's that's what Carl was used to, and there's nothing right or wrong about that because that was just the way it was in the time. We only in the eighties we started to understand the importance that we do need to chat. So that takes a long time. So I I I never really talked about it. Um, I, I thought he was just it's a bit. It was maybe he was a bit grumpy, a bit difficult, and. Um, and we, you know, sat in the pub a few days before he died, having, you know, a drink and a chat about cycling. Cause I'm a really keen cyclist, and mm. we were sort of talking about pros and, you know, and um, but anyway, uh, as we got forward through November and into December, the weather had been really bad, and uh, and not just the weather, it was it was really grey. So I always remember, you know, these grey days. And I came home from co our college, and um, there was a big letter on the side, big brown envelope, and I just thought, well, that's odd. And it had my name on it, and it was really official. And um, any, any, anyway, that was letters. Uh, there was a big sort of brown envelope full of where we would find him. Right. So um, contact with the police and they didn't tell us anything. Then we would try it and I'd go and pick up my boys from tennis and then we would phone the police again and still we couldn't get anything and we didn't know what was happening. And we didn't know where he was and what, was, what, what, what had happened. And then... Um, I think about six o'clock the police turned up. So it's just like a scene out of EastEnders, really. So um so yes, yeah, my young my youngest was eight and my eldest was was ten really. It was ten and um it was just the most impossible situation, mm. as you can probably imagine. Mm. But it was made a bit and and it's been a real battle. It's mm. been a real battle. It's been up and down ever since that happened. Um just because of dealing with generation 
age gaps who talk who decide it's best thing to do is not talk about it um family yeah so there's about sort of um being too critical of different things that happened you know because it is a very difficult situation and people don't really know how to react and everybody responds to the way that they think they should um but my friends were amazing and and we've had ups and we've had lots we've had lots of ups and downs and um but my boys have come out the other side and we had some real difficulties with one of my my youngest when he was sort of doing a levels and because we lost my dad and he was really close to my dad yeah. and um and but but what's happened sort of now we are a bit further down the line both my boys are doing really well and um, one of them is has got a job over in Cambridge he went to Manchester Uni and he's got a really good job he's very happy and the other, the other one who's um in his third year at university right. um, doing aerospace engineering and right. doing really well and we're all really close so mm. I I really enjoy my small family unit that I've got um, mm. I find it difficult sometimes sort of moving outwards in family circles, but, um, you know, our nuclear family is, so we've, and we're, and, um, and my boys love a lot of the things that my, that Carl did. Carl, um, was worked with, um, in, was a software engineer, um, really loved, um, loved science, physics, making things, all the things that the boys are. Um, traveling all the things that the boys are interested in so mm. they do so many things that he did and we talk about him a lot but um it never goes away no and and it's really bizarre it's really funny that the work I make I used to have conversation with Carl about art and um and the merits of he he would never really quite understand um I guess sort of contemporary art and we would always and he really liked the art he he uh, appreciated was where he would look at something and he couldn't work out how somebody could possibly make it <laughs> and it's just bizarre that I ended up with a medium that he probably would have really valued so um so it, yeah so I, I think he's a big part of my making and every time I'm making you know he's always he's a big part of it so it has been a really a really really difficult sort of time but when you have these difficult times, when it's really good, you really appreciate it. Yeah. So I remember being at the summer exhibition in 2018 with my piece of work on the wall. And some of my friends who'd helped me so much through all the difficult times were there to celebrate this piece of work, being in the summer mm. exhibition. And that was probably the best part of it, and being there with my mm. boys. So, um, but like we were saying about resilience, it's like managing sort of that kind of loss. You, you know, you you get it doesn't go away you get yeah. you get used to managing it you get used to integrating it into your life um and and i think it's changed a lot of things about me but, but some things to the good i've learned a lot mm. i've learned an awful lot about you know suicide and and reading lots of other people who found different ways to cope with it and using art or writing so um is it and easier? It's, and it's a part of us now. Yeah. Is it easier to talk about it? Not for you, but do as a society we have a better language for talking about it now? Oh, we have a we have a much better language now for talking about it. I mean it's it's still it's still difficult. There's still some people who are saying things like, gosh, that's such a selfish thing to do. And you're just thinking it's completely 
completely not selfish. They think they're mm. making a decision that is going to be better for everybody else. They mm. don't realise how much they're going to be missed. And mm. I always just think to myself, if only I'd asked him that day when he was leaving to go to work. And um, But for a lot of time, for my making, I, I couldn't talk about I, I find it difficult to talk about it. It wasn't obvious. It was a bit subtle. My making mirrored how I lived my life. But I didn't actually, the conversation around suicide didn't come up unless somebody asked me, why did I make a car engine? And when I explained that I made a car engine because I was doing drawings that were these jobs that I'd had to take over because Carl wasn't there anymore. And I had to, suddenly it was my, I had to fix things. I had to put, um, if something broke, it was, that was my job to repair it. And then one day I was lifting, lifting the bonnet of the car and I thought a car engine, he used to do this. He used to put the oil in. He used to check the tire pressures. So that's why mm. I drew the car engine. So unless people ask me why I might've made a piece, it wasn't obvious. It wasn't more, it wasn't obvious until I got to the Royal College of Art. <laughs> And then I really found my voice. But it mm. has really changed. It, it's really changed now. I mean, you can mention the word suicide now about people being horrified that you mention it. People are always always sad and are always very compassionate. But it's a word that we're now more familiar with. And that yeah. can only be, it's very sad, that more, but it only, can only be a good thing. Yeah. Had I been more familiar, maybe I would have asked Carl some questions. Yeah, if people want um, help with this subject, where are the best places for them to turn? So I, um, obviously, we had um, support with a local charity called the Rainbow Centre. Um, so I'd always say to um, Winston's Wish are really good. We had contact with Winston's Wish. Um, and also, it's really funny how you can find out normally by word of mouth asking friends, somebody will always know a place or somebody who's offered support there's some really good books on the subject because one of the things the worst one of the most horrible things about death through suicide if if somebody's had cancer there's been a lot of time to come to terms with it and you found mm. out a lot about the illness about why they might have caught the illness why they died but with suicide you don't know any you can't answer any of those questions you have lots and lots of questions that you can't answer but what's quite there's, there's lots of books that help you they don't give you the answers but they help you to under, understand the questions that you're asking and um, so sort of help just crops up in the most unusual places. It might be a book that somebody might recommend. It might be a piece of work that you're seeing um, in an exhibition. It might be having a conversation with somebody. But um, but I also think obviously as well, I mean, mind um, are always are always really good as well. Mm. So there's, the most important thing is, do you know, it could just be getting help from the person that you're sat next to, just telling somebody. Yeah. Or, and also for us to actually really listen. I mean, how often do we say to somebody, you know, how are you? And people say, I'm fine. Um, it, it just becomes a way to greet as opposed to being a way to really ask how somebody is. Yeah. And especially men yeah. as well. Men just don't want to talk about it, do we? I like oh. to stew in my own brain. And the thing is, you can be <laughs> self-aware about it. Like I can be like, oh, I've got this thing that's really annoying me. And rather than talk to my wife, my best friend, I'll just sit and be a grumpy twat for the rest of the day. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, what? Men, come on. <laughs> I know, I know. And that's, that's a really important thing. And that is the one thing where my boys are really good. So, uh, yeah, mostly I hear about the things that go wrong. And they do tell yeah. me. So I just keep thinking, oh, you know, that's, that's what I needed to achieve. I just needed to have two sons who would talk about 
or do fame in the night at half past two. Mm. <laughs> Something's gone wrong and you're just thinking, okay, I've got to sort this out. But oh my gosh, they've just phoned me. Mm. You know, so whatever or whatever it is, is not insurmountable. We can sort it because you've made that call, because you've made contact with me. Yeah. So now we can help to sort it. But by not making the contact, you know, that's... um. It's just the most important thing, really. Yeah, to my, talk and for people to listen. Yeah, my wife's mm. uh, dad died of a heart attack all of a sudden when she was seventeen, and she's got three siblings, and her mum's still alive, and they're such a close knit family because of that. Like, it's mm. it's, it's a horrific yeah. thing, and you wouldn't wish any, you wouldn't wish death on anybody. But in these circumstances, yeah. the one yeah. thing that comes out of it is just a, such a strength. There's such a unit that family that I mean, that's a sort mm. of it's a poignant beauty, I suppose. It is actually. It is. Uh, you know, I mean, we, you know, it's, it, we can't control the things that happen to us in life. Like when I'm trying to control my stitches. <laughs> mm. But um, it doesn't mean to say. And some things are just so awful, and you think, how can I get over this? But but you do. I mean, you might not get over it. You just just becomes a part of you. But um, yeah. But you can still carry on living after it and and things can be better exactly as you say because my relationship with my boys is really good and we love having time spending time together and so uh, mm. I really really value that um okay. I mean obviously I wish Carl could be here with us to share and to sort of enjoy it as well in the plans that we had for you know for our future but um you know everybody's plans you know plans do change it's quite mm. hard to accept that but they do change yeah and he still remains your muse yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah, he does. And there's somebody else on Instagram as well, and she suffered a loss, a sim- you know, through suicide as well. And and that's where the making is really good because you, you, I really think about my making and before I put things on Instagram. But then when you have these conversations with people, so um, again, when you say that about where can people get help from, it's amazing. You know, this this arm, this sort of. Um, you know, on, on our community on Instagram, you know, especially with textiles, um, it is it is quite amazing and people, um, and when you're reading, you just it's, you're quite humbled that people are responding in the way that they are with such honesty as well. So um, it's a, it's a really, a really value being um, a member of the textile community. I think it's, um, I think we're, I think we're really fortunate. Thanks for joining me on another Needle Exchange. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'd love to hear from you, so feel free to email hello at needle.exchange. That's N-W-E-D-L dot exchange with any thoughts, comments or feedback. And if you want to keep up with all the news, sign up to the Needle Exchange mailing list at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash needle exchange. See you next time.